0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants.
1: Where's the responsibility of the Vatican, who signed in 1933 the Concordat with Hitler, giving him his first tremendous prestige? Are we now to find the Vatican guilty? Where's the responsibility of the world leader Winston Churchill, who said in an open letter to the London Times in 1938? 1938! Your Honor, were England to suffer a national disaster, I should pray to God to send a man of the strength of mind and will of an Adolf Hitler. Are we now to find Winston Churchill guilty? Where's the responsibility of those American industrialists who helped Hitler to rebuild his armaments and profited by that rebuilding? Are we now to find the American industrialists guilty? No, Your Honor, no. Germany alone is not guilty. The whole world is as responsible for Hitler as Germany. It is an easy thing to condemn one man in the dark. It is easy to condemn the German people to speak of the basic flaw in the German character that allowed Hitler to rise to power. At the same time, comfortably ignore the basic flaw of character that made the Russian sign pacts with him, Winston Churchill praise him, American deserts profit by him. American deserts profit by him. Profit by him. Profit by him. Profit by him. Profit by him.
2: Welcome everyone, it is Thursday, January 19th, 2023. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right! Fade into color, color into black and white Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright We're going to be going down a very deep and troubling rabbit hole today, one that I am sure is well outside the range of most people's knowledge or experience, including much of my own until very recently. But we won't begin that journey before briefly picking up where we left off last week thanks to some feedback, or should I say pushback, that we got regarding my personal account of my own experience with libertarians and libertarianism as you will hear for yourself right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show because, as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Now, last week, you may recall, a segment of the show was about libertarianism, anarchy, and polarization. And we introduced that part of the discussion with some feedback from Robin V., whose subsequent feedback to me this week would suggest that Robin was not too happy with my response. Quote, Hi, Robert. I heard last week's show, and your response to my comment made in response to episode 791, Not Our War with Maxime Bernier, and in regards to the PPC and the Libertarian Party of Canada. Quote. And then Robin cited the original feedback sent to us, which we read on the air last week, and which, for those who missed it, read, quote, I beg to differ that the PPC is the only party that is right for Canadians. The Libertarian Party of Canada has been advocating for individual rights to life, liberty, and property since day one for over the last 40 years and will not support Canada's participation in senseless wars. I feel it is just not right to give such an opinion without having an audience with Jacques Boudreau, leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada. And that was Robin's comment on last week's show. And so this week, Robin continues, quote, I found last week's discussion about your personal experience and opinion about libertarian and anarchism not a relevant response to my comment that was explicitly about the PPC, the Libertarian Party, and its leader. Nonetheless, after listening to last week's show, it became clear to me that we are not on the same page in regards to left and right ideologies and libertarianism. As you may be aware, many times political parties do learn from their past and move on. For example... Unparty was known as a market anarchist party in the past, as per the Wikipedia article below, and later reinvented itself as the Freedom Party of Ontario. I guess, if true, this part of Memory Lane was skipped in last week's show for not meeting the narrative. Quote. And then Robin cites a Wikipedia reference to Unparty, and then continues, quote, Furthermore, with the airing of last week's show, I hereby request to cancel my Freedom Party membership with immediate effect and remove me from Freedom Party's mailing list. This way I can still subscribe to Just Right Media with a clear conscience and a personal opinion shared on that media platform will not become a conflict of interest to me. I will always be grateful to you and Paul McKeever for showing me the importance of individual consent to life, liberty, and property. Both of your contributions to philosophy of freedom and capitalism to humanity is truly valued, and I will always cherish them for the rest of my life." Wow. Okay, where do we begin to untangle this cauldron of contradiction? Let's begin again at the beginning. Says Robin, I beg to differ the PPC is the only party that's right for Canadians. The Libertarian Party has been advocating this for 40 years. Well, Robin, this is incorrect. The Libertarian Party sits squarely on the left, not on the right, both in its historical origin and purported ideology of individual rights which cannot possibly coexist with any notions of anarchy or of merely less government. And Robin says, I feel it's just not right to give such an opinion without having an audience with Jacques Boudreau, leader of the LPC. Well, So what you're saying, Robin, is that me expressing my opinion on my show is just not right unless I allow another voice to compete with mine. Now based on what moral principle is that not right? And Robin tells us, As you can see, I had not passed comment on any ideology as such. I merely suggested to give the leader an audience the same way the PPC leader was given for reasoning to ensure an unbiased opinion or statement on Just Right's media platform. Was that too much to ask? (laughs) Well, no, not too much, just very misguided and oblivious to my response. I thought you were asking why we didn't give him an audience. You very explicitly commented on an ideology when you said that the Libertarian Party advocated for rights to life, liberty, and property. That's ideology. On what possible non-ideology could such values possibly be based? All of politics is about ideology, and you're not just asking that we give some independent, non-aligned individual with some kind of expertise or unique experience a platform but the leader of a political party with which we're ideologically opposed on fundamental principles, and to which I went to great lengths to explain why. You purport to suggest that your objective is to ensure that the Just Right media platform should ensure it offers unbiased opinions and statements. Are you kidding me? Just Right is a 100% biased and opinionated platform. Check out the name of the show and how it is positioned and how it starts every week. Not right wing, just right. How much more biased can you be? Our bias is in favor of the truth, which is only to be found via a principled ideology and philosophy based on reality and reason, and the proper epistemological definitions, including that of libertarianism and anarchy, which is what I did last week. We're not here to balance our bias with any falsehoods or misunderstandings. I'm not doing this show to balance the truth with anyone. But here's where Robin's comments get downright ironically funny. Nonetheless, after listening to last week's show, it became clear to me that we are not on the same page in regards to left, right ideologies, and libertarianism. Well, that's an interesting conclusion to have arrived at, given that you said you weren't commenting on ideology as such. But here comes the ultimate punchline. As you may be aware, many times political parties do learn from their past and move on. (laughs) Here I am at this point thinking, oh yeah, name one. And then Robin does. For example, Unparty was known as a market anarchist party in the past, as per Wikipedia article below, and later reinvented itself as the Freedom Party. I guess, if true, this part of Memory Lane was skipped in last week's show for not meeting the narrative. Oh my goodness, Robin. Robin, do you have any idea who reinvented Unparty as the Freedom Party? That was me. The entire event I relayed last week was held under the auspices of Unparty, prior to its executive handing the reins of the party exclusively and entirely to me. It's a story that has been told many times on this show over the years, and you would have heard it all again had you clicked on the link at the bottom of your subscriber email that you received. That was the January 2022 episode entitled Just Say Yes. A Cure for the Politically Hesitant, in which Robert Vaughn and I describe this whole history and much, much more. As I've said frequently, I've made every mistake in the political book because of incorrectly associating the values of freedom and capitalism with organizations and ideologies that are too unprincipled to make those values realizable. Even your initial reference to the Libertarian Party of 40 years ago was about me which is why it seemed to me that letting you know about this history more than answered why it was a relevant response to your comment. Normally, I would have expected someone with your expressed concerns to have been delighted with my expanded response. But for doing so, you now respond with, I thank you for putting me in place with relationship to the the Freedom Party. I hereby request to cancel my membership, effective immediately, and this way I can still subscribe to Just Right, etc., etc. And then Robin says, I will always be grateful to you and Paul McKeever for showing me the importance of individual consent to life, liberty, and property. Both of your contributions will always be cherished for the rest of my life. Well, if canceling your financial support to both Freedom Party and Just Right Media is your way of cherishing something you truly value, quote-unquote, I can't even begin to comprehend the confusion on which that kind of logic would be based. Not unlike, I suppose, that of a close associate of mine who ran for the People's Party of Canada as a candidate in the last election and who told me that although he would always quote-unquote continue to support Maxime Bernier and the PPC, he was considering voting for the Conservative Party of Canada because he liked some unspecified sentiment expressed by its party leader. Wow which now brings us to the precipice of that deep and troubling rabbit hole I mentioned at our show's outset. And the following audio bite that will guide us to that rabbit hole will also explain why we opened our discussion today with talk of libertarians and libertarianism. In a stunning and revelatory interview with Roger Stone conducted by Viva Fry's David Fryheit last week on Friday, on this side of our upcoming bumper, Stone reveals how he fell onto the same libertarian trap as so many good people do, framing his experience very much like my own, as expressed on last week's show. And then, on the return side of the bumper, their conversation dives down the proverbial rabbit hole with some of the most disturbing and, quite frankly, utterly depressing realities regarding the depth of corruption and criminality now in charge of the United States government. And that's only the tip of the iceberg. We enter the conversation as Stone, of course a close compatriot of Donald Trump, describes how Trump himself initially dipped his toe into the murky waters of third-party politics.
0: He was deeply opposed to the war in Iraq. Uh, He was more than smart enough to know that the attack on America in 9-11 had nothing to do uh, with Iraq. Uh, and that that was Dick Cheney maneuvering for oil and power and money. Uh, and uh, he, both in, in uh, 1988, when there was the first talk about Trump running for president, which he really used as a platform to denounce uh, the abuse of this country in NATO, something he's always felt strongly about, like, why does everybody pay their fair share? Why are we paying for the Germans and the Italians and every? Why isn't anybody paying their fair share but us? He started saying that in 1988, when he became president, he was able to make everybody pay up. Uh, even then, he was talking about the in inequitable trade deals that we had made. A good trade deal is a deal that was supposed to be good for both partners, but we had these one-sided trade deals. He was—he's been talking about that since 1988. So. In 1988, when he talked about running for president, in 2000, when uh, Ross Perot, who was a friend of his, all these billionaires know each other, uh, and Jesse Ventura, uh, who had wrestled professionally at Trump Plaza, but who by that time was the governor of Minnesota, both tried to persuade him to run as the Reform Party candidate, which he did not do. He resents it when people say, well, you ran and lost. No, he, he explored it and elected not to run. The reason there's some confusion is months after he dropped out formally, uh, the Reform Party had uh, primaries, uh, I think it was in California uh, and Michigan, and Trump won both of them, even though he was not an active candidate, but he he didn't run. He was serious about considering it. He put forward a a tax plan. He put forward a a number of specific public policy proposals, Um, but he knew instinctually that an independent or third-party candidate ultimately could not win that the barriers were too great you couldn't get into the debates Um, they let ross perot into one debate that was the last time that ever happened Uh, you couldn't get into the debates because the presidential commission on debates is not appointed by the president is not a commission and it's most definitely not about debates if it were then the Green Party candidate and the Libertarian Party candidate would have been in the last two presidential debates, but they weren't. The criteria that they use to keep you out is, well, you're not showing in the polls. That's a ridiculous criteria. Here's the criteria. If your name is on the ballot in enough states to potentially win 270 electoral votes, you should be in the debates. I don't care whether you're the Green Party candidate or the Libertarian Party candidate or the Vegetarian Party candidate. Uh, but the, the two-party system—you know—one hand washes another. So all of your your ballot access laws, which are different in all fifty states, they're written by Republicans and Democrats working together to make sure that a new party will never rise. And while they're at it, let's make it difficult for us to have any intra-party challenges. Let's make it extremely difficult for anyone to challenge an
3: incumbent. Uh, it is a very broken system. Something similar in Canada, I ran for federal office and had no chance of winning, but we had the same problems where a small new political party uh, was being denied into the debates because you don't have a certain percentage, even though we were running basically a a full ticket across the country. But it's a way to make sure that... It's tougher to enter. It's tougher to succeed, and it's tougher to win. And you know, it, it's good for the existing parties. But yeah, I, I had a similar experience.
0: I have high hopes for the new
3: True North Party of Canada, which has finally gotten its approval. You have to be approved by the government to form a new party. Well, I ran with the People's Party of Canada. They they got approved. It's the second federal election, and yet you know, candidates were still not being invited to debates because they didn't have two percent or four percent yeah, in, in an polling.
0: Arbitra- it's an arbitrary. Uh, it, it's, a,
3: it's a rigged system, as as, as some might have said. My my political discovery uh, journey has been slow and then fast, but like I, I got into following American politics when Trump was running, and then that's when I had my call it the red pillish moment. I I, I was a wet behind the ear virgin, so to speak, back when nine eleven happened. I was believing intelligence, believing the government. Oh, they had reports, they had weapons of mass destruction. When they don't find them, oh, they had Scud missiles. That was bad enough. Um, tw- when Trump ran. And I fully appreciated and and realized the degree to which the media is thoroughly twisted, thoroughly corrupt, thoroughly, uh, let's say, uh, partisan, for lack of a a more um, hyperbolic term. And that Hillary Clinton, it was her turn, media saying 99. I remember New York Times, 99% chance Hillary wins the day of. And I said, it, it takes someone. And Trump was loathed. Trump was loathed by people who voted for him, I presume. That she was so loathed that she couldn't, uh, that she lost to Trump. That was when I was like, "Holy cows!" Well, they were you know? both—they were obviously both exceedingly polarizing figures. But let's recognize
0: she and her husband had vast experience at presidential campaigns. He had run twice. They had both worked in the McGovern campaign. She had once run once previously for the nomination. They had extensive experience in how this works. Now, com- now comes along the improbable candidacy of Donald Trump. They wanted to run against Donald Trump. They wanted to run against the one man who could beat them. Uh, they uh, they underestimated him tremendously. Uh, yes, he was polarizing, but not more polarizing than than she was. The Republican Democrat divide in America is a is a Hegelian act. okay? Look, I have deep sentimental attachment to the Republican party of, of Goldwater, of Reagan, of Trump, of Lincoln, uh, I mean, I'm a proud Republican, but when we, the party nominated Mitt Romney, I thought he was such a head uh, that I switched to the Libertarian party for two years. Uh, then we find out how
3: disorganized and crazy and anarchistic
0: they are. I had to switch back to the Republican
3: I, Party. I, I only know the Libertarian Party from their tweets on Twitter, and some of them are tweets that uh, even I wouldn't put out. Well, look, there's uh, a lot of great. Liber- <laughs> I met a lot of great people in the Libertarian Party, but the Libertarian Party has two wings.
0: It has a sane wing, and it has a, 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 a uh, uh, an anarchist wing. But think about this: if one is an anarchist, then one should not belong to an organized political party.
3: But you've been in politics for 40 years, give or take Uh, what I've witnessed and what I've seen and what I've learned from American politics as of Trump is a a level of corruption that I can't um, believe existed prior to to the same degree. Has it always been this cutthroat, this vicious, this um, weaponizing of all of all government institutions to persecute ideological adversaries? And as I ask the question, now I'm, I'm thinking right back to the assassination of JFK, so maybe it's always been like this to some extent or another, but has what you've experienced in the last six years been worse than anything you've ever seen in your life in politics? The,
0: the answer is yes. Look, uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, ordered the FBI to wiretap Barry Goldwater's, uh, uh, pardon me, Richard Nixon's campaign plan in 1968. The government is most definitely complicit, particularly Central Intelligence Agency, the Secret Service, and the FBI all complicit in the murder of John Kennedy, we get closer and closer to it. People say, well, why didn't Trump release documents? He did release about 80% of the documents. Then they say, well, why didn't Biden release all the documents? He also released a substantial number. I mean, we're getting closer and closer to it. Uh, Ultimately, they'll throw in the towel, but right now, just based on what's already been released, the CIA's lies about their knowledge of Oswald are absolutely clear. Oswald was trained to speak Russian in the CIA language school in North Carolina, and the reason that they never released his tax returns or his tax information is because he's getting 1099s from the FBI, who he is working for as an informant.
3: And and you you describe this. This is in the 60s, or maybe even the late 50s, and then you you know we fast forward to the Whitmer. Uh, kidnapping plot where you have informants on FBI payroll. You fast forward to January 6th where you have FBI involved in infiltrating, and I'll put it in quotes, um, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and infiltrating to become familiar with the... Just
0: as the the CIA infiltrated the Watergate burglar team, just as Four members of the Watergate burglars were also on Daily Plaza in 1963. What an incredible
3: coincidence it, that is. It, so, it is Mark Twain's history doesn't repeat, but it tends to rhyme. Uh, um, but,
0: so I guess the
3: bottom line of this is never have they been so uh, overt about it.
0: Never has it been so so obvious. So in the, in, the, in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, we sought to defeat our opponents in elections. We did not seek to destroy them and send to prison uh, if we disagreed with them. We just sought to beat them in the elections. The civility in politics
2: that did exist is completely gone. The quote-unquote civility that existed in politics only exists when the deep state in power feels assured of its power. As soon as it's seriously threatened, as it was by Trump, that's when you can see how quote-unquote civilized the politicians really are. And note how Roger Stone happened to mention how polarizing both Trump and Clinton were, once again bringing to light the principle of polarization that has been one of our recent discussion points. And with regard to everything both Roger Stone and David Freiheit said about how elections are effectively a closed shop for the parties in power, I can personally confirm that with my own experience. And as their discussion turned to the assassination and murder of John F. Kennedy in 1963, it also became the introduction to our own turning point in an expanded discussion on that issue that I must forewarn you now will not be completed on today's broadcast, and to which the balance of today's show is merely really an introduction. As I hinted at the opening of the show, we're going to be going down a very deep and troubling rabbit hole, one that may be very uncomfortable, especially if the rabbit hole you've been hiding in is down the street and up the block. (laughs) On January 12th, our good friend and regular guest of this show, Salim Mansour, forwarded to our attention a link to what may be one of the most disturbing films you will find about the state of corruption in the American government. It was accompanied by his following comments, and I quote, If you, and I trust you do, still have an abiding interest in the JFK story and his execution by the deep state. The link provided will lead to a documentary that takes one through the history, not only of the murder of JFK, but also of the United States being turned into a proto-fascist state with the election of Woodrow Wilson. This is no longer a theory, and if it is to be disproved, the entire responsibility rests with the deep state to fully reveal to the public the JFK files that the Congress required by statute to be released more than two decades ago, and they have not been released in defiance of the Congressional requirement. The producer of the documentary, From JFK to 9-11, Everything is a Rich Man's Trick, is also the author of the book on which this documentary is based. Francis Richard Connolly is a Scot by birth and an artist whose interest in the JFK story took him into the rabbit hole to write, produce, direct, and narrate this documentary that was released in 2014 and then deplatformed after it had secured over a billion viewers worldwide. It has once again been released recently for reasons I, or anyone else, may only speculate. A very recent opening monologue by Tucker Carlson on the JFK murder, one may infer, probably has something to do with the undisclosed internal pressures in American politics to find some method of releasing portions of the JFK files to distract the public sufficiently so that the key facts of the murder and its cover-up remain buried in the vaults of the deep state for another generation or two. We'll never know.
4: So not long after Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald on camera in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters, a lot of Americans started to have some questions about the Kennedy assassination. It was, you'd have to admit, a pretty extraordinary sequence of events. A lone gunman murders the President of the United States, and then, less than 48 hours later, that lone gunman is himself murdered by another lone gunman. What are the odds of that? It's one thing if you get struck by lightning, rare but possible. But if every member of your family also gets struck by lightning all on different days, you might begin to suspect these are not entirely natural events. But oh, replied the US government, they are. This bizarre chain of killings was all entirely natural. So less than a year after the JFK assassination, the Johnson White House released something called the Warren Commission Report. And the report concluded that while their motives remained unclear, Both Lee Oswald and Jack Ruby had acted alone. No one helped them. There was no conspiracy of any kind. Case closed. Time to move on. It would be nearly 50 years before the CIA admitted under duress that, in fact, it had withheld information from investigators about its relationship with Lee Harvey Oswald. But even then, at the time, before that was known, the government's explanation didn't seem entirely plausible, and some people started asking obvious questions about it. It was at that point, as Americans started to doubt the official story, that the term conspiracy theory entered our lexicon.
2: From JFK to 9-11, everything is a rich man's trick. It is over three hours long and probably will test anyone's interest as to whether or not, in one sitting, the documentary can be watched. Speaking for myself, I have also been logging my time inside the JFK rabbit hole over the past year in understanding the nature of the American deep state as one of the most criminal organizations in modern history. And I find myself, despite the pain, liberated from the lies in which, just like so many of us, I was complicit in regurgitating. May there be divine forgiveness for those truly repentant who knowingly or unknowingly lent credence to falsehood and lies by which people were abused, and worse, by those criminals who prayed among us as if they are our betters." Quote. Well, Salim sure got my attention with that introduction, and now I would like to do the same for you. The documentary from JFK to 9-11, Everything is a Rich Man's Trick, was readily available on both YouTube and on Rumble when I checked it out, and once I sat down in front of that documentary, I don't think I moved for the next three and a half hours. And it is from this documentary that most of our remaining audio bites originate, and I don't even want to try to explain the challenge I faced in choosing which parts of that almost four-hour movie to highlight for our purposes today. So here's what I did. Although you will hear many, many names mentioned in our selections, for the most part, I left out the intricate details, including the 9-11 focus, all documents and things like that that were covered in the film. So what you'll be hearing over the balance of today's broadcast is just a taste, just the flavor of what the entire film is about, and even that will occupy most of our remaining time today. Our selected cuts include the opening of the film, the introduction, as well as its closing remarks, along with a much broader narration of the greater plot and story. So, at least if you don't get a chance to watch the entire documentary, you'll have a pretty good idea of what it's all about. So here we are, at the edge of the proverbial rabbit hole. Are you ready? Okay, let's jump. We now
5: know that there were actually... Eight riflemen firing at the president on that day. We know where they were located in Dealey Plaza and we know their names. However, the riflemen who took part in the assassination were not as important to an understanding of what the Kennedy assassination was really all about as were a group of 20 men who had gathered together the night before at the home of Dallas oil millionaire Clint Murchison. These men were a much more important part of the story Than the assassins themselves because they hired the eight snipers and paid them we even know how much they paid them so who were these men what brought them together to orchestrate such a foul and despicable deed why did they and more importantly those who came after them cover up the crime with such ruthless brutality for so long afterwards and how can it be that these men and what they stood for has left an indelible legacy which still influences our daily lives right up to the present day. To answer these questions we must inevitably step back into history and most people will not like this very much because most people have very little interest in history. This however is going to be a history lesson quite unlike anything that anyone has ever heard. It is very difficult for the general public to accept that the super-rich leaders of their Western world can possibly be as mad and deranged as they actually are. The public, generally speaking, are sensible and level-headed people who have to balance their checkbooks, so they inevitably tend to laugh at stories about Satanists and occult believers. But if you talk to any well-informed historians, they are all aware of the important role which various secret societies have played in human history. The Black Hand, always played a pivotal role in the history of the Mafia. If you talk to anyone in the UK who was political and read books, they are always aware that the ruling class of Britain, including every member of the royal family, is a Freemason. And the emblem of the death's head was sported on the caps of the high-ranking Nazi officers from the very beginning. The symbols of these secret societies always seem to play around with some kind of skull-and-bones motif, so that it's abundantly clear what their mission statement is. These people are pirates, willing to commit any crime for big money. During his premiership John F Kennedy was surrounded by bondsmen like McGeorge Bundy and David Aitchison, son of Dean Aitchison. Kennedy knew these men refer to each other as brothers under the skin. They swear an oath of secrecy and then ruthlessly vow to help each other's careers in any way they can throughout their lives, even if it means committing murder. In Britain, every literate person knows that all of the top police officers are Freemasons, because if there are ten candidates for a top job, a Mason will always select a Brother Mason for the post. Skull and Bones works the same way, and JFK took this problem so seriously that he even made speeches warning America about the danger of secret societies.
6: The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society, and we are as a people inherently and
5: historically. He knew the people on this list were neither silly nor irrelevant because he knew they were the real holders of power in America, operating as they were, as an unelected shadow government accountable to no one. And it was these same people who brought Hitler to power during the 1920s by becoming business partners with leading German industrialists. The reality of the situation prevailing at that time can be very easily understood simply by looking at the cover of Fritz Thiessen's book I Paid Hitler, on which he is depicted as a puppet master controlling Hitler's strings. Thiessen was a billionaire industrialist. He was the man who built the Bismarck. His company, United Steelworks, made three quarters of all Germany's steel and he joined together with Skull and Bones members Prescott Bush and George Herbert Walker to financially assist the Nazi party. Together they recruited head of the German central bank Jalmar Schacht to the fascist cause, and then combined with other leading industrialists to sign the letter which convinced Hindenburg to appoint Hitler as chancellor on the 20th of February 1933. Of course, the Germans themselves were ecstatic. We've all seen the newsreels from that time in which they are stomping around in their jackboots, acting like a master race, because they had swallowed the propaganda that they were being led to glory by a superman who had rebuilt the economy and Germany's infrastructure all by himself. This was a lie. Hitler didn't have any money. You can only build autobahns with one thing, capital investment, and that investment came mainly from America. The Nazis were also given a lot of help from the city of London, help which came mainly in the shape of Sir Montague Collett Norman. Governor of the Bank of England. One might have thought Sir Montague's close personal friends, the royal family, would have been outraged by his comments. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is part of the remit of this film to try and make people aware of the tricks the rich play in order to control how we think. George Orwell once said that the ruling class in every age have tried to impose a false view of the world upon their followers. And there's no better example than the way in which the British have been duped into believing that their royal family are called Windsor and descend from English kings like Henry VIII. The British royal family are, actually, German and their real name is Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. They only changed it to Windsor after Windsor Castle in 1917 to hide the fact that they were German during the First World War. Prince Harry, in honour of his German roots, has been known to dress as a Nazi on several occasions. Dozens of critics have pointed out that the Duke of Edinburgh's brother was the head of the Nazi SS. And King Edward VIII, before he abdicated to marry the American divorcee, Wallace Simpson, visited Hitler to make it abundantly clear to the whole world that he too was a Nazi. He even signed his name Herzog von Windsor. Thinking people during this period realised that this whole thing with kissing up to the Fuhrer somehow transcended national boundaries. The rich people, from the most diverse countries, had bonded together because they all shared a common goal. The kings and the queens and the international bankers and industrialists wanted to make certain communism could never succeed. They were determined they weren't going to finish up like the Russian royal family and they were determined to hang on to their money. They were much more afraid of the ordinary working people in their own countries than they were of fascist Germany. And this prevailing sentiment amongst the world's ruling class led America's elite to attempt a fascist coup d'etat in 1934. In school, we are taught that the Allies defeated Nazi Germany in World War II. This is not true. The Nazis won the war because the real Nazis, the rich, played on both sides. That's what a rich businessman does. He arranges things so that he is well thought of by both sides. So then whoever wins, he wins. And his money is safe. Now a lot of people will still think it is simply ludicrous to suggest the Second World War was a phony war. They are bound to say that no one who was there at the time thought it was a phony war. Really.
7: A new baby, 200 gross of buckles, unlimited petrol and all the whisky you want. You're sitting pretty, aren't you, Holden? Yes, it is a lovely war. Well, wouldn't you if you were in my place? Wouldn't everybody? Doesn't everybody? The war's a blasted phony, anyway. I'm a bit tired of that. Tired of what? This phony war business. Well, isn't it? No, it's not. I've just come out of hospital after 10 days in an open boat off the Faroes and I'm sick and tired of blokes like you with soft jobs ashore. Come outside! Now, don't be silly. I've lost two fingers off that hand, but I'm going to take you outside and knock your block off with my right. Ah, oh, take it easy. There's no need for that. I'm sorry, I apologise. I'll come outside if you insist. That won't do any good. It's not his fault. It's the fault of all of us. You make me sick. All of you. It may be a foley war to you, but it's not to all the boys at sea. It never has been.
5: It shouldn't come as any great surprise that George Herbert Walker's family were slave owners on the cotton plantations of 1930s America. Walker was used to organising slave labour. So while his business associate, Avril Harman, was paying for Hitler's half million SS troops and supplying them all with brand new Thompson submachine guns, because he did, Walker took over the management of this new Polish concentration camp. And when his Nazi friends started complaining that they couldn't pronounce the name Auschwitz any better than I can, They all got together and decided they had better Germanize the name into something which sat more comfortably on Nazi tongues. It was in this way that the world first heard of Auschwitz. Because the truth about Auschwitz and the entire Nazi war machine is that they were essentially no different to McDonald's. They were American business enterprises abroad. Businesses which the richest European families invested in and businesses which because of slave labor made obscene profits which Prescott Sheldon Bush took and placed in a blind trust which later financed a Bush political dynasty which produced two presidents of the United States, his son George Herbert Walker Bush and his grandson George Walker Bush. This picture of the railway leading into Auschwitz has since World War II become the iconic image of the Holocaust. To us it now represents something like the gate to hell But how differently, one wonders, would we have looked at this image, all of our lives, if we had always known that this railway line was an American railway line, laid by the Harriman brothers on behalf of Uncle Sam. The Standard Oil IG Farben cartel even made the Zyklon B gas for the Jewish Holocaust. Now anyone who at this point is thinking that all this simply cannot be true because if it was, someone would have sued? Well, someone did. This information came into the public domain because of a Dutch intelligence agent who was so disgusted when he found all of this out, he leaked it to the press. As a result of which, two very senior Jewish gentlemen, Kurt Julius Goldstein and Peter Gingold, filed suit against the American government. Of course, the more discriminating among us will now be asking how it can be that this story went completely unreported in the mainstream media. One might just as well ask why the Times in London was writing favourable stories about the Nazi concentration camps throughout the 1930s, and why Lord Rothmere was still referring to Hitler as a great gentleman as late as 1940. You really would think by now that people would have realised that it isn't so much the bias in the media which really matters. It's the things they know about, but never tell you, that really matter. Because the truth is that the press knew exactly what was going on in the concentration camps all through the war. They never said a word about it, because they knew who was making money from the slave labour. Now, obviously, the British and the Dutch in particular will have a very hard time accepting that their royal family profited from Nazi concentration camp slave labor. But if you go online, there is so much about this on the internet now. It's become plain that historians are more and more proving that those days were really all about the Western world's rich coming together to fund a Nazi war machine which was meant to protect them from the Soviets. The Duke of Edinburgh practically admitted this when he said, in those days we were anti-communist because the Russians killed half my bloody family. And when this cabal of secret Nazis got together to discuss how they were going to pay for this Nazi war machine because rich people never accept a loss, they hired a psychopath, Hitler, who they knew would go along with their building concentration camps so that slave labor would pay for all the planes and the tanks and the guns. And you can see in the more intelligent movies from that period, like Hitchcock's Saboteur, that the artists and writers of that time knew the rich were fascist, and completely understood what they were really up to.
7: Why is it that you sneer every time you refer to this country? You've done pretty well here, I don't get it. No, you wouldn't. You're one of the ardent believers, a good American. All the millions like you, people that plod along without asking questions. I hate to use the word stupid, but it seems to be the only one that applies. The great masses. The moron millions. Well, there are a few of us who are unwilling to just troop along. A few of us who are clever enough to see that there's much more to be done than just live small, complacent lives. A few of us in America who desire a more profitable type of government. When you think about it, Mr. Kane. The competence of totalitarian nations is much higher than ours. They get things done. Yeah, they get things done. They bomb cities, sink ships, torture and murder so you and your friends can eat off of gold plate. It's a great philosophy. I neither intend to be bombed nor sunk, Mr. Kane. That's why I'm leaving now. And if things don't go right for you, if uh, we should win, then I'll come back. Perhaps I can get what I want then. Power. Yes, I want that as much as you want your comfort, or your job, or or that girl. We all have different tastes, as you can see. Only I'm willing to back my tastes with the necessary force.
2: You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Quote, the competence of totalitarian nations is higher than ours. They get things done, end quote. Doesn't that sound a bit familiar? Last time I heard that one was right out of the mouth of Canada's Justin Trudeau when he commented on how much he admired the totalitarian regime of communist China. You know, they can get things done, don't you know? And when I heard Francis Richard Connolly stress that it's not the media bias that matters, it's the things they know about but never tell you that matter, I was inspired to expand on an expression you may have heard me repeat many times in the past. It ain't so much what people don't know that gets them into trouble, it's what they do know that just ain't so. But you know, that could be expanded to say, it's not only what people do know that just ain't so that gets them into trouble, it's also what they don't know that is so that can get them into trouble. (laughs) Which was pretty much what Connolly said. But here's a remarkable thing. Each version is based on the same principle. If you believe anything that does not correspond to reality, you're going to get into trouble. Now, back down the rabbit hole. The biggest crook in the land was the head of law enforcement, J
5: Edgar Hoover. This is what historians have failed to understand until now. When JFK appointed his 32-year-old kid brother to the post of Attorney General, these people collectively froze. It now fully hit home that JFK really was honest and decent. It hit home that he wanted to make his country as honest and decent as he was, and that he actually believed that with the help of his energetic and determined crime-busting brother that he could do it. His attitude, of course, stood in marked contrast to the man whom Kennedy was saddled with as his running mate. Anyone who has any doubts about the moral rectitude of the average American politician of that time has only to look at the career of Lyndon Baines Johnson to see that, generally speaking, they were worse than the Mafia itself. From his involvement with the Box 13 scandal and through all of his dealings with his crooked Texan business associate, Billy Solestes, LBJ proved again and again that he was every bit as unscrupulous as any more boss and willing to do absolutely anything for power. This was a man who'd had his own sister, Josepha, murdered by his personal hitman, a highly intelligent and psychopathic killer named Malcolm Wallace, who later shot dead the golf professional John Douglas Kinzer. When this case came to court, it revealed to the American public how totally corrupt the justice system had become, because LBJ was able to get Wallace off with a five-year suspended sentence. Found guilty of murder one, he walked free that very day, JFK was well aware that the CIA was something much more like a private firm or a family. He wasn't surprised when they invaded Cuba without his permission, because he knew they were totally out of control. His antipathy led him to cancel the promised air support, and inevitably the invasion failed. After the Bay of Pigs invasion, Kennedy had fired Alan Dulles, Richard Bissell, and General Charles Cable, for essentially using the CIA as their personal hit men after he found out that Robert Mayhew had sought Sam Giancarna's permission to talk to his underboss, John Roselli, about the possibility of a hit on Fidel Castro. Here you have a government agency, funded by the American taxpayer, associating with the very organised crime racketeers JFK was trying to put in jail, for the purpose of carrying out political murders. The President was incensed. Historians have never been surprised that he vowed to smash the CIA into a thousand pieces. It hardly takes a genius to see why the CIA wanted to kill him. LBJ knew his life was finished if Kennedy lived, and he would become president himself if Kennedy died. So his involvement in the plot is hardly difficult to understand. This circle of thugs and pirates was completed by LBJ's next-door neighbour, J. Edgar Hoover who had himself invested millions in Clint Murchison's oil business just like his mafia associate Vito Genovese. Stepping back to look upon this rogue's gallery it really is remarkable how Kennedy had managed to make an enemy out of every single dirty hood, every corrupt politician and every single Nazi businessman living in the country at that time. It is highly misleading even to see these groups as separate because the truth is that they were all brutal fascists who saw nothing wrong in killing to get their own way. What most amazes me in all of this is the naivety of the good people in the truth movement who go on and on and on saying they want an independent inquiry. The Bush family and their rich friends are not going to investigate themselves and there isn't any authority on earth above that of the ruling class. So it's never going to happen. These people have got the police and the judges and the justice system completely under their control. The Queen of England cannot be prosecuted for anything, not even genocide, in a crown court, because the crown courts are hers. She owns British justice. The only way to change our corrupt system is through revolution. And then the people have to march on Washington, just as they did for CIA agent Barack Obama's inauguration. Only this time, they need to kick him and every other crooked politician out and take power genuinely for the people's sake. And once again, they better not take too long about it. Because the last time the rich decided to play a really big trick on the world, six million lives were extinguished. Supposing they decide to give us the world's first incidence of phony nuclear terrorism by dropping an atomic bomb on Cleveland, or Birmingham, or on Chicago, what then?
8: According to the time drive, uh, the date is November the 22nd, 1963, and we're in the city of Dallas. Now come. Give me that thing.
4: I've always been a bit of a technical whiz when it comes to these kind (laughs) of (laughs) gizmos. Dallas, 63. No doubt about it. Dallas.
8: Wasn't that place where that American king got assassinated? JFK. No, it was John something, not Jeff K. (laughs) JFK, not Jeff K, you gin boy. Like the airport. I did a paper on him at school. I wonder why anyone would want to name their kid after an airport. (laughs) The airport was named after the president. Nice one, Kreitz. Where are we? It says 1966. I must have prodded us forward three years. At least it'll give us time to analyze the original error. Hey, there's nobody here. The entire city's deserted. I don't understand it. What would did was save Kennedy's life? Is that bad? What kind of a dude was he? He was a fine man. Look. Just processing. I'll reroute the results through my chest monitor. President Kennedy was impeached in 1964 for sharing a mistress with Mafia boss Sam Giancana. It was the biggest scandal in American history. Kennedy was sentenced to three years in an open prison in July 65. J. Edgar Hoover became president. He was forced to run by the mob who had pictures of him at a transvestite (laughs) orgy. (laughs) So America had a president controlled by the Mafia. Soon after his election, the USSR were allowed to install a nuclear base in Cuba in return for mafia cocaine trafficking between Cuba and the States. With a Soviet nuclear base 30 miles from the US mainland, people fled from all the major cities. So am I right in thinking there's a chance I could get a major nuclear explosion all over this suit? Because I'm telling you guys, that stuff does not dry clean. Kennedy's impeachment in 64 traumatized the American nation, allowing the USSR to win the space race. In this reality, it was probably the Russians who were the first to land on the moon. But you guys said Kennedy was a great prez.
3: He was. He was also an inveterate womanizer. His affairs were legendary. They never came out when he was alive. Uh,
8: Every man has his weak spot, his Achilles heel.
3: Kennedy's was just higher up.
2: Given that From JFK to 9-11 was originally available back in 2014, its concluding warning about a potential false flag of nuclear terrorism sure struck home in 2022 when we were forced to investigate that very real possibility, and which is increasingly looking like a probability. And let me now add that from JFK to 9-11 is not the only source online that will challenge your view of the history that you think you know. The avalanche of truth is only beginning and is now about to descend upon us. History is being unveiled and it is only because of the power of the internet that this is possible, Robert Vaughn recently commented to me. And you know, I was thinking about that and it struck me that you can no more say that the history is settled than you can say the science is settled. Because knowledge doesn't grow on trees, contrary to a popular Garden of Eden narrative suggesting that this might be so. The tree of knowledge does not just deliver all its fruits in a single basket. So here's something to consider. Is history repeating, or is it merely an eternal continuum of unchanging events with ever-changing players? Now, I expect to be getting together with Salim Mansour soon to continue this theme and this discussion. And, of course, Just Right is part of that internet that Robert Vaughn referred to, as are so many other broadcasters and podcasters and bloggers. But never forget that the most important and integral part of the internet is you, which is exactly why you are invited to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white.
5: Under the everything will be
6: all right. Hang on. Maybe. Just mainly there's someone who can get us out of this mess. Where are we going? Idle Wild Airport, July, 65. Give me five minutes. Don't be alarmed, sir, but I have a very strange tale to tell. I uh, have had plenty of time to reflect on my days in the White House. In all important respects, I believe I did a good job. It was right to plan a pull out of Vietnam, uh, to fight for civil rights, and uh, to fight Congress uh, to put a man on the moon. It was uh, wrong, however, to uh, act like an irresponsible jackass with all those women and allow my enemies to wreak havoc on our nation. But I can help, man. I mean, Mr. President, and man. I mean, say it. How uh, can you help? Well, come with us back to Dallas in November 63 be a second gunman. The gunman behind the grassy knoll. You mean uh, assassinate myself? Yeah, it will drive the conspiracy nuts crazy, but we'll never figure it out. <laughs> but I uh, still have a future here. Jackie left me, but uh, when I get out I can uh, still make a contribution to the world. See this airport? Wild Airport. In our reality, they renamed it JFK after you. Where I come from you're a liberal icon and that's the person you should be. But if you're gonna be that person you're gonna have to sacrifice your life. And only then will my reputation be restored in history. Hmm? Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country.
3: Hey that'd make a pretty neat speech
6: that. It did.